All right, do me a favor and trap down a Bible if you can and get with me to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17, that's on page 306 in those blue Bibles down in baskets by your feet. Um, we're going through a series right now. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. We are using a children's storybook Bible to lead the way. And so many of you are reading this uh, throughout the course of the week. And then on Sunday mornings, we're getting together. And I'm trying to show you kind of the big story and the big overarching story of God's plan of salvation that ties all of these individual ones together. Um, so uh, I'm going to take you to a place in the Bible that really is... Um, it talks about an entire section of scripture and it kind of makes an evaluation about it. And uh, it's one way that we can try to cover more ground in only 11 weeks. We have to make decisions about where we go and what we interact with. And, and this chapter, 2 Kings 17, it really kind of encapsulates a lot of the material. It helps us to understand what happened to the people of God when they did get into the land and when they did have the word of the Lord and when they did experience, you know, some of the benefits and privileges of being the people of God. And we find out it doesn't go so well. Um, but we're, we're covering this morning, we're doing 2 Kings chapter 17. And this one sermon will help us to orient ourselves to a lot of the smaller stories in here. Um, so really in here, we're going through pages 108 through 175. Any of those stories that happen uh, in the Old Testament with the people of God in this season, uh, that's kind of what we're, we're framing out here this morning. So I'm going to read the text. It's long. It's got weird words and concepts. So buckle in. Uh, we'll read the entire thing starting in verse 6 all the way to verse 23. And then we will pray and get to work. 2 Kings chapter 17 starting in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah and Gozan on the Habar River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers. Turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your, your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced 
divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nebat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all his servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to hear your voice. And we acknowledge the remoteness of this text, that it feels foreign to us. It feels strange to us. It feels weird to us. But we believe, God, that you've given us this book for our good, that you want to speak to us today, that you want us to know something about what it was like to be the people of God and to fail to live up to that high calling. And you want to give us a way forward. So Holy Spirit, would you take this book and help us to hear the voice of the risen Christ? We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We've been tracking with the story of these people. We've recognized that God, uh, on the very front end of the Bible, that, that the sin issue is the issue of the human condition. That a disconnectedness with God himself is the problem. And we had to, we had to then leave uh, a, a pristine relationship with him. We had to leave the garden. And, and then we saw God uh, and choosing a people and that people being redeemed. We saw them uh, as they were in slavery in Egypt. And God said, you are my people. I'm going to bring you out. And he showed them how to, how to embrace that identity as redeemed people. And then last week we went to the bottom of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and we found them there receiving the instructions from the Lord himself. And so the question that was lingering for me as we're moving our way through the story, is this the moment when the people of God now embrace their high calling? God said, out of all the nations of the earth, you will be mine. You will be my treasured possession. And here are my words, words of grace, words of life, words of commands and decrees that really are words of the promise. And so we begin to wonder, okay, is this the moment then, now that the people are established, when they get into the land and they start listening to the voice of the Lord through the scriptures, are they home? Do they experience God in the way that they're designed to? Is this the moment where God has dealt with the sin issue and brought them to himself? And what do we find here as you read the chapter? There's one word that really stands out to me. It's failure. You read you know, from Mount Sinai all the way until Christ comes, you, you think about the experience of the people of God. And yes, there are small episodes of people being faithful. There's always a remnant. There's always a faithful few. But in general, according to this chapter here, you just see people over and over again failing to live up to that high calling, failing to embrace the identity that God has given them failing to really deal with God in that covenant relationship and turning then away from him and turning toward sin. And that's what we find here. So there's a lot of material. I'm going to suggest that we look at it with four different uh, lessons to be learned. The privileges of God's people, the persistence of sin, the punishments from God, and the promise to Judah. So let's get to work. The privileges of God's people. 
When we look at this story, if you're paying attention, you'll notice some subtleties in there. That God is saying, you are failing, but in the midst of that, notice some of the good things that God has done. And I actually think it's a really good idea for us to be able to recognize the blessings of God and even count those blessings. But when he's dealing with this people, he's reminding them of some of the things that he's done for them. First off, he redeemed them. Look at verse 7. The Lord their God brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You guys remember that that language should sound very familiar if you were here a few weeks ago when we recognized God is a redeeming God and he rescued his people. That he, he saved them from that situation of slavery in Egypt and he brought them out and he led them across the, the sea walking on dry ground and he, he made a people for himself. He established them in that moment. He showed them what they had to do to apply the blood to the, the doorpost so that when judgment came, they were passed over. And all of that is here in verse 7. They are a people who have been redeemed. And so they need to recognize that's a privilege. That's a privilege to be in that relationship with God where he is, you could say of him, he's my savior. He has rescued and redeemed me. He also gave them a land. He gave them, he told them, I'm going to bring you into a good land, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he did accomplish that. Look at verse 8. The Lord had driven out other nations from before them. So they get to go in, houses are built, cities are built, and they get to go in because God had driven other nations out before them. And they get to experience the privilege of being God's people in God's land. Another, another thing for them to consider that they had a place of belonging. That though they had wandered in the wilderness for, for many years, they finally get to go in. They start to, you know, settle there. They build the temple. They build, you know, some permanent features there. It would be like us getting to that place in our storyline where we might say, we have a permanent location and, and we no longer have to do the thing in the morning where everyone comes in and sets everything up. It would be that moment where you're able to say, we have a place of belonging. And they had that. They also had the words of God. They were instructed in the things of God. In verse 13, it tells us, God speaking, observe my commands and my decrees and everything that the law has laid out for you. And they have then this incredible privilege that they know what God is like and what he has said. And they have this privilege of being able to know it clearly and then to think about how that applies and then share it with other people. They have incredible privileges. They have another privilege as well. It's the privilege of when they fail, God continues to draw them back to himself. They do fail, and we see that in our story here, but, but over and over again, God patiently works with them, and he keeps sending prophets, and he keeps sending people to warn them. This one message, repent, like, like Melody was talking about a moment ago, repent and return to the Lord. Look at verse 13. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your ancestors to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. They, God was patiently working with them. And he, whenever they would fail, he would send more prophets and the prophets would speak and they would preach and they would take the word and they would apply it to the people. And, and the prophets would say, come on, guys, return to God, return to him and experience his blessing. Now you might be wondering, what does all of that have to do with me? What does that have to do with us this morning? And the truth is, everything that I've just described that was an advantage for them is an advantage for you. 
You're here at a church. You're here on a Sunday morning, and many of you would profess to be followers of God. So you could own any of these different privileges. You could say, I'm a redeemed person. God has shown me a way to be spared from the judgment. He has passed over me. He has, I'm covered in the blood of the lamb. I'm a redeemed individual. I'm a saved person. I am gifted with a place of belonging, not necessarily a permanent facility, but a place where you can come in and say, this is family. This is a place where God has gifted me with this blessing of of being able to say, this is where I belong. This is home. He's given us instructions and the things of God. He's given us his word. He's given us instructions that are clear for us that he speaks and he tells us what he's like and he tells us what he requires and he tells us how to live with faithfulness to him. And he warns us when we fail to live up to that high calling, he continues to by his word through with his spirit, he's calling us back, repent, return to the God who you will find to be faithful and he will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So God is giving us all kinds of different blessings. And so the question that I'm looking at then is, why is it that in light of all of these privileges, the people of God fail so miserably? Why is it that they look at what God has done for them and they go, that's not enough? Because can't we do the same thing? That if we fail to acknowledge the blessings of God, we might come in here and we might, we might kind of be bored, just like the Israelites were bored. They're looking at other gods and they're saying, man, I wish that we had a Baal. I wish that we had an Asherah. I wish we had a God and like the starry host, like these other nations, and they do certain things and they go through a ritual and it appears that their God does something immediately for them. I wish my God were like that. And they begin to look at these other gods and then embrace that way of worship. And the same thing can be true of us. We can come in here and when we fail to perceive the privileges and the blessings, we can look at it with disdain and we can look at the experience of the church and go, you know what? I wish my church were different. I wish it were more exciting. I wish, you know, like we keep going to the Bible, but sometimes I almost fall asleep when I'm here on Sunday mornings. Good grief. This is Snorfest stuff. And we might say, I wish that it were different. Give me a, give me a pep talk. Give me a little pick me up self-help kind of thing, and I can march out into my work week, and I can engage with the world. And we can begin to look at the way that we even engage with God, and we can say, that's not good enough for me. We need to become a people who count our blessings, who look at these different realities and say, that is enough. What God has done for us in redeeming us, what he's done for us in giving us a place of belonging, what he's done for us in giving us his word so that we could hear his voice, so that we could know him and shape our lives accordingly. What he's done for us in in, um, warning us when we fail and calling us back and inviting us to repent and turn to him, that's enough. But we need to be careful because their experience was a discontentment in their religion. They were discontent with the things of God. And we need to be careful because we can express that as well. We can fail to perceive the blessings that God has given to us. All right, the second thing we find here, the second lesson is the persistence of sin. Though they have these advantages, though they have these privileges, nonetheless, sin persists. It shows up. It dominates the landscape of this chapter and most of the chapters in the history of the people. 
Why is that? Sin is persistent and it's everywhere. I could have picked any verse in here almost to show you this fact, but let's look at verse nine. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. Even though they had that privilege of being the people of God, they did things that were not right. They turned away from God and they worshiped and served other gods. So here's one of the things that we're going to see then. We need to be careful not to have an overly simplistic view of sin. Which, here's what I mean by that. We can't say that sin is a small problem that we have to figure out how to manage. Because that didn't work for the Israelites. If sin were simply something that we can, we can kind of manage it, and we can say, look, if I build the right structures around my life, or if my church does the right kind of stuff, then I will be safe. The truth is, you can have all of that stuff and sin will persist. Will it not? I mean, that's what's happening here in this story. There's a book coming out this month. It's called When Narcissism Comes to Church. And the author of it, I've been tracking with him as, he's, as he was writing it and through his counseling and pastoring and, um, and leading stuff. And, and I was intrigued by this concept because what he's showing is that there's this narcissism within spiritual leadership. And you see people in spiritual leadership misbehaving. And doing things that you would not expect. Things that you, you look at and you say, man, that's catastrophic when spiritual leaders fall in this way and shipwreck their faith. And one of the insights from the book is that sin is an equal opportunity employer. When you look at the different groups, like denominations or kinds of churches or churches with different theological convictions, my expectation was I could probably point out which ones were more susceptible because of their belief system. I thought that if I knew something about the way they're organized or the lack of their accountability structure or anything like that, I'd be able to say, well, these are the ones who probably show up consistently. I was wrong. Sin shows up in every grouping. Doesn't matter what denomination, doesn't matter what organizational structure there is, doesn't matter what accountability things are in place. Sin is an equal opportunity employer and it shows up everywhere. When we read this story, one of the things we should see is you could have all of these advantages. You still have to pay attention to sin. You can have the law of God. For the Israelites, it was their entire experience. Everything about their human experience was designed to help them interact with God. Their law was literally the law of God. There were punishments if you disobeyed God built into their, you know, experience of life. They had a, a rhythm of, of religious activities. They had things that would happen on a weekly basis. They had religious activities and festivals that would happen seasonally. They had annual things. They had all kinds of different privileges that, would, that were built into the fabric of being the people of God. They had accountability structures. They had leaders who, Deuteronomy 17, their job was to copy the Bible and then to read it every day and then to try to lead. They had all of these different advantages. And nonetheless, what do we find them doing? We find them sinning. We find them failing to live up to this high calling that God has said of them. Out of all the nations of the earth, you will be my people. I will be your God and I will walk with you. But here's what you need. A charter document to know how to walk by faith in the God who redeems. And they take that document and they essentially trash it. 
They move away from God and they start worshiping and serving other gods. So here's what we need to be careful then when we consider this stuff. Sin is a major problem that we're never going to manage. That we're not going to be able to solve this thing with strategy. We're not going to be able to fix this thing that goes on inside of us. We're going to have to listen to what God is going to give us. We're going to have to recognize that the way of dealing with sin is actually the promise that God has given us that comes true when he sends his son, Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, that God is going to deal with sin, that he's going to do something that's going to bring us back to God. He's going to do something that he says he'll write the law on our hearts. He'll change us from the inside so that we could actually obey. So sin is very persistent. So let's take a look at how honestly the Bible puts it. It, it's called here idolatry. And at the root of it then is this worship of other things, uh, an obedience and a worship and a trust in something other than God. And, um, and it's described for us in a variety of ways. So let's just walk through it quickly. In verse seven, it tells us that the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God. So it's a, it's a relational thing. It's against God. It's against God. In verse eight, it says they worshiped other gods. They looked at this redeemer and they said, that's great that you did that for us, but we prefer someone else. Verse nine, they followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. They're, they're inventing new ways to rebel against God. They're looking at the landscape of the other nations and saying, let's just onboard some of this. Let's just become like them. Look what they have going for them. Let's just do some of that. And here's some other ideas as well. They are, they are rebelling against God in their idolatry. Verse 9 and following. It's happening everywhere. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. From the smallest places of lookout on the very edges of their territory to the biggest places of metropolis in, in their region. Everywhere, everyone is turning away from God and turning to something else. Verse 10, they set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They are worshiping other gods in a variety of different ways. Part of this is due to the disregard for the voice of God. Look at verse 14. They would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. God speaks and they say, we don't care about that. We don't care what God has to say to us. We're going to go our own way. Verse 15, they rejected his decrees and the covenant that he made with their ancestors and the statutes that he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They're turning away from the voice of God, the word of God, the commands and decrees and statutes, and they're turning to their own, to their own way. And it was bad. Look at verses 16 and 17. They made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Here's what it's saying. They are committing idolatry in every conceivable way. In every place, every person is turning away from God and worshiping something else. And you might be tempted in this moment to say, Cor, that might be their problem. That's not my problem. 
I'm not sitting around with a golden calf worshiping that thing. I'm not sitting around committing idolatry. I'm not sitting under spreading trees, lighting incense. I'm not doing whatever it is you're talking about here. That all sounds weird. I understand God's upset about that. That's not me. That's not my issue. But the truth is idolatry, though it looked different in their culture, is is very much alive and well today. It's very much alive and well in my own heart. Idolatry is when we worship and serve something other than God. And yes, sometimes in the course of history, it was very obvious what what that looked like. Taking wood and cutting it down and making an idol. But oftentimes, especially in our culture, it's more subtle. We are allowing certain things to become for us God. We are allowing certain things to become for us a functional savior the thing that we long for, the thing that we trust in, the thing that we worship with our time and energy and resources, the thing that our life really revolves around. There's some diagnostic questions. I've shared them with you before. They come from David Paulinson and they're very helpful because we want to know what are our idols. If that's what they were doing back then, we don't want to go that way. What are the things that we are tempted to worship and serve? David Paulinson gives us a few different questions. Here's the first one. What is it that your mind gravitates to? When you're sitting around and you don't have a project or a concern or a relational thing going on, you just have some mental bandwidth and your, your brain starts to drift. What is it that it drifts to? Now that might not be an idol per se, but that might actually get you going in the right direction. What is it that you daydream about? Now, I was thinking this morning, most of us don't even daydream anymore because we have smartphones. So we don't even have margin to daydream. We're rarely even sitting around without a device in our hands. So maybe another question that we could follow up with is, what is it that you populate your social media feeds with? What is it that that you fill your web browser with? What are the things that when you're just sitting idle and you're scrolling, you're looking at it like, oh yeah, that's awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, oh man, I can't wait for my life to be this. What are those things that we put our trust and our our worship into? Um, Here's another question that Paulinson gives us. He says it this way, and this is one that is really searching, but what is the thing that if it were taken from you would devastate you? What is the thing that if it were no longer an option for you, you would have a hard time considering what life would look, at, look like beyond that. So what is that thing? And it could be a good thing, but if you make it an ultimate thing, if you make it a God thing, that's idolatry. What, is it the, what are the things that you feel the need to have? So for some young people, I did student ministry for long enough to know how this works. They're, they're aiming to get a particular gaming device and they're saving up hard-earned money and they're looking at that and that's their... That's their thing. That's what they daydream about. That's what they work toward. And if mom or dad said, I'm sorry, but you cannot have that new gaming console. For some kids, that would devastate them. That life would be over. But it's not just kids. I mean, we all have idols. One of the reformers said, our hearts are idol factors. We just keep pumping out these things that we worship. For some of us, it's probably a a job promotion. We think that there's some career advancement that we could make that if we got there, we would be in heaven. We would be safe. We would be everything that we want. And what if that job gets eliminated? 
What if that job gets offered to a colleague and not to you? If that's your thing, if that's your idol, if that's what you're worshiping and serving, it will destroy you. And they look different. I mean, idols can be all kinds of different things. I've told you before about a couple of the bigger seasons in my life where God revealed some significant idols. One of them for me was, was athletics and doing specific sports at a specific level. And when I got injured, I had, to, I had to realize this thing has become an object of worship for me. Because if it goes away, I don't know what my life is. That's idolatry. Recently in the last, uh, it was probably three or four years ago, maybe longer now, but, but I was kind of in a place where I was feeling like I was stuck and I was thinking about ministry and what I needed to do. And I kind of came up with this idea that I probably need to pursue my degree. And that degree for me became my savior. The way that I would think about it was I have to do this. I need to do this. This is, this is the thing that's going to give me life. That's going to make me happy. And so if somebody would say to me, no, that's not an option. That would be, that was devastating. That was absolutely devastating. So the idols are the things that we worship and serve. And this story is reminding us that it is a profound issue, that sin is a persistent reality that shows up in all of our hearts when we are worshiping and serving something other than God. And, and, and it can be in all kinds of different people. It's not unique to good guys and bad guys. The thing that has surprised me in ministry, the thing that surprised me probably the most is when I see somebody who I would never expect to sin in an, in an extravagant way to shipwreck their life and their faith. That always just, it takes my breath away. And I have to reckon with the fact that sin is persistent. It is an equal opportunity employer. And if we're not careful, if we don't acknowledge our idolatry, we will end up just like the Israelites. One of the, um, uh, it's a Russian novelist. He puts it like this. This is, he's got a really tough name to say, so I'll butcher it, but it's Alexander Zolson Heinitsen. And he says, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not between classes, nor through states, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Sin is a persistent reality that I struggle with. And I wonder if you do as well. The third thing that we see here, the third lesson that we learn is about the punishment of God. If we persist in sin, if we never find a remedy for it, if we just say, it is what it is, I'm a sinner. And we never figure out what God has done for us in the person and work of Christ we lose our connectedness to God. The Israelites are exiled. Look at verses six and seven. The king of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord, their God. All of this is owing to their sinfulness. Verse 20 tells us as much when it starts by saying, therefore, therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel he afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. Because of their sin, that they've not figured out what to do with yet, they're no longer in the presence of God. Just like Adam and Eve had to leave the presence of God in the garden. It's repeating itself. History is repeating itself. Verse 21, God tore Israel away from the house of David. Verse 23, the Lord removed them from his presence as he had worn through all the servants, the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile and are there still today. 
So what do we see then? If sin is not dealt with, if it's punished, we lose God. We are removed from God and from his presence and from his many blessings. I remember at camp, it was a handful of years ago now, but we were going through the story of Jonah. And, you know, Jonah's a prophet and he runs away from God and they throw him off of a boat because the storm is threatening to break the boat up and he gets swallowed by a fish. And so in chapter two, he finally has this moment where he's like, you know what? I think I've made some poor choices. And he's inside the belly of the fish and he begins to pray. And there was a verse in there that, that has stood out to me over the years. And, and it's where he's praying. And he said, and I learned it um, in an older version, but it goes something like this. It's, it, he was praying and he said, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. That's what we're seeing here. That's what the punishment of God is. What, what is it? It's forfeiting the grace that could be yours. When you sin and you don't go to God to have that resolved and, and you're experiencing the, the displeasure of God that ultimately will result in separation from him, here's what you're doing. You are clinging to a worthless idol and you're forfeiting this incredible thing that could be yours a relationship with the God who is, a connectedness with the God who made you and knows what's best for you, an awareness of his word, which really is for your good. It's the, the way that the designer intends for us to flourish. And you're forfeiting that. And instead you're clinging to a worthless idol. You are forfeiting the grace that could be yours. And it results in punishment if you don't get that resolved with God, but God has made a way. And we find that in our fourth lesson this morning, the promise of Judah. Judah is one of the tribes of Israel that from the very beginning, God spoke. There were 12 different tribes. And he says, this one, Judah, it's through this tribe that my promise is coming true. And Judah, we see in the text here, and it shows up briefly, but it is there. Verse 18 and following, it says, only the tribe of Judah was left. And it's reminding us then. So it's saying everyone's failing. The people of God have fallen away from God. They're worshiping and serving all these other gods. But then it reminds us, even still, God has a, he has a plan. Even still, God has made a promise. Even still, there's a way of salvation that is coming. Now, they didn't experience it in that moment in the profound way, but they're reminded here that there is a promise to the tribe of Judah, and that is the line through which Jesus Christ will come the lion of the tribe of Judah, the savior of the world, the one who brings us home to God, the one who takes on himself the penalty and the punishment of sin and gifts us with his perfect righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that God has made a promise that he's going to bring humanity back to himself, that Christ died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And that good news is the gospel. And that good news is here when we're reminded of this promise that God has made to Judah. God is the one who will bring about salvation. We are the ones who bring our sin to the party. And God says, I can deal with that. Let me show you my son. Let me show you the way of salvation. Let me show you what it truly means to be redeemed. So place your faith in him and then embrace the, the gift of being God's people. Embrace all the privileges that we've already outlined. Embrace being the people of God because you've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray right now and invite anyone to turn to him in this moment and to find him to be their savior. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. 
We thank you, Lord, that you've been telling a story through your word. You've been telling this story about the, the journey home, the fact that we as humans have rebelled against you, that we have a preference to worship and serve other gods. And you continue to woo us to yourself. You continue to draw us to your son. Lord, we're so grateful for that promise that we can be redeemed. We can be your people. We can be a treasured possession. And that's who we want to be, Lord. For anyone in here who's not trusted in Jesus Christ, I pray that right now they would make that decision because you've made that invitation. Lord, for anyone who's here trying to manage their sin, thinking that by a little bit more church, a little bit more Bible reading, a little bit more listening to sermons, a little bit more serving, they can deal with this fundamental issue in their heart, Lord, open their eyes. Open their eyes to see there is no shot. There is no chance that we can fix it ourselves. But you, God, have made a way. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our Redeemer. We pray all of this in his beautiful name. Amen.